If you've been with us here during the summer, you've recognized a blessing that we have in this church that is not common, uh, is the wealth that we have of those that are gifted and capable of bringing to us and feeding us by God's word. Uh, For those of you who have been with us only this summer, uh, the pastors do preach here occasionally. (laughs) And we will begin that next week again. But during the summer, it has been a tremendous blessing for those who filled in. And it's only a a fraction of those that we are blessed with that are capable and gifted teachers of the word. But we have another blessing this morning. Uh, And it's uh, a great opportunity for us as a church, not only to honor God, but to see God at work. Uh, As Taylor Hausman comes and brings the message this morning, Taylor is not only our youth director, he has been been received as a candidate for ministry in the Tidewater Presbytery of the PCA. And while he speaks and his regular teaching uh, with our our youth is substantive and much uh, like a sermon. Uh, This is the first, I guess in his words that he posted earlier this week, his first big boy sermon. Um, (laughs) And that can be quite unnerving at times. And so I'm going to pray very briefly for Taylor, and primarily that he just be himself, because by being himself and seeing the God who is at work in him and who God has made him to be, we're blessed. And with the wisdom that he has gained from his study, of course, all the more. So let's, let me pray. Father, we do pray this time that you would prepare our hearts to be hearers of your word, that you by your spirit would shape us, and that you would use Taylor in order to do that. We pray that you would make him at ease and enable him to have joy of this opportunity to not allow either this pulpit or the congregation to in any way intimidate him, but rather just to recognize that he is among friends and brothers and sisters, and we are as excited to hear from him as he is to present you to us. Bless him and bless us through him, we pray, to the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Taylor. All right, I'm on back there. Good deal. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is a great opportunity, and I thank you for it, to open God's Word with you and uh, that we may uh, worship our God together. It's a great uh, honor. I'd like to just start by thanking uh, you all for praying for me, for supporting me, for loving on me these last just over two years as I've worked with our youth um, and thank you to those who are the parents of those youth who have kept me uh, young and exciting, you know, and, and have kept me uh, running around in circles for the last couple of years. I've told a couple of them to, uh, to not heckle me while I'm up here. I'm looking at you, Luke Martin, and uh, Becca, you too. Uh, my sister's here, so keep it down, Mary Frances, as you, uh, as you all. Um, but it is a great pleasure, so thank you for it. Um, I just wanted to start this morning by saying that one of the things in my just over five years of ministry that has been perhaps more valuable than anything else has been the movie The Princess Bride. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a great a great movie, one of my favorites of all time, but it's also one of my, our students' favorites, um, and uh, you know, it's, it's great. I think I love it, not only because it's hilarious, but because I think it speaks to a lot of what humanity is. I think a lot of the characters go through a transition throughout the film that speaks to where we are. My two favorite characters in the film are Fezzik and Inigo, played by Andre the Giant and um, Mandy Patinkin, respectively. Um, They're great. If you haven't heard Brendan Simper's impression of Andre the Giant doing Fezzik, then ask him. I doubt he'll do it, but it's worth asking because it's great. 
but in seriousness, I, they are just such relatable and great characters, and it's, and it's so awesome to see throughout the film how they transition from people that don't really understand their identity and where they belong into people that are working toward a noble cause and working together for that, and through that work, they find their identity. That's what's incredible, and I think it's something that we can relate to this morning. Uh, this summer, primarily, we've been going through the I Am statements from the Gospel of John, looking to answer the question, who is Jesus? To get a very biblical answer of who Jesus is, and I want to answer that, or work to answer that question this morning, but also work to answer the question, what did Jesus come here to do? What's the mission of Jesus, and then where do we fit into that? Um, so that'll be sort of the goal this morning. We're going to read a very familiar passage to most of you from the Gospel of Mark, uh, if you want to get your Bibles ready, it's Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. It's on page 841 of your pew Bible. The question that most of us ask, no matter where we are in our lives, is what is my purpose? Why am I here? Is what I'm doing important? I work with teenagers, and as you know, many of you teenagers ask that question pretty much every hour on the hour. But I would argue that most of us ask that question most of the time anyway. I'm 28, and I certainly have not figured it out. Um, I speak to folks that are older than me that have also not figured it out. And, and so I would, uh, I, I would say that that's the question on most of our minds, really no matter where we are in our relationship with God. We all want to know what our purpose is. We all want to know what our identity is. We all want to know where we fit. The Bible presents us with a theory on this and an answer to that question that's very concrete. The Bible, which is God's story of redemption from creation to the end, at the center of that story of redemption is Christ. And what the Bible comes along and says is that only when you align yourself with Christ and only when your relationship with Christ deepens and grows can you truly find your identity. And only when you get installed and working into what Christ's mission is, can you really understand what your purpose is? That's the Bible's answer to the question. Aligning yourself with Jesus. And aligning yourself with Jesus' work, which we'll get into later. But before I get into that, I want to read our passage for this morning and pray for us as we pursue to, um, to understand it. So Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And I'll read and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Beginning at verse 30, this is God's word to us. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, this is Jesus, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside villages and buy, some, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said back to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves 
and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let me pray for us before we get into this. Heavenly Father, I ask that in this time you will help us to discover the meaning of this passage, that we will hear the gospel, and that it will take shape and transform our lives. God, I I ask that in this time your spirit will be powerfully at work. Fall upon me, the preacher. Speak to me, speak through me, and speak despite me, Father, as you minister to your people. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, going back to The Princess Bride, which is usually where I like to go back to. Um, it's a safe place for me. Uh, Fezzik and Inigo are two characters that begin the film with this guy named Vizzini, the guy that says Inconceivable, if you're not sure who that is. And he's a bad guy. He's trying to get a war going between these two countries, and they've kidnapped the princess in order to do it. And we get to a scene where they're all on the boat together, and it's just so obvious if you're watching that Inigo and Fezzik don't really fit where they are. It's not really comfortable. They're hilarious. They do this thing where they rhyme back and forth, which I think is the funniest part of the movie. But they don't fit. They don't really seem to get it. And there's even a scene where Vizzini goes back, talks about their past. And so it's indicated that, yes, they may not fit, but this is really all they've got. This is really all they have. But as the movie and as the, as the story progresses, they meet up with Wesley and they stay with Princess Buttercup and they, and they go on this mission to find true love and, and to preserve true love. And throughout that, they find their purpose. And by the end of the film, Andre the Giant somehow miraculously jumps from a tall building onto a white horse and doesn't kill it. And they ride off together in a beautiful ending to the movie. And I'm sorry if that's a spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen it by now, then... Just assuming you're not going to. Um, <laughs> so that is, that's a truly beautiful story, and I think we can find ourselves somewhere in there. Sometimes we, we, we just get into these situations, and we get into this group of friends, and we get into this culture where we don't really feel like we belong, but we don't really have anything else. And in order for us to truly find our purpose and identity, something truly amazing, something truly transformational has to take place. This, this passage this morning is familiar to most of you. It's perhaps one of the more familiar passages in the entire Bible. I believe it's the only one that is found in all four Gospels. Some of you, when I said I'm going to read the feeding of the 5,000, probably rolled your eyes back and said I'm going to hear another sermon on this. But I urge you this morning as we read this not to miss the point. Sometimes we read these stories of the Bible and we have learned them since we could walk and talk in Sunday school and we miss the point. What is the, what is the writer trying to get at? I urge you not to miss that. The point of the story is not that Jesus can perform miracles. Yes, that's a true statement from, from the Gospel writers, but that's not the point. The point also is not that Jesus provides for His people. Also true, but not the point. Don't miss the point. The point is is that Jesus Christ in the Incarnation came to earth to renovate every square inch of creation. In the fall, everything became broken and messy, and Jesus came to fix it. Not for our good, but for His glory. Our good is a byproduct. It's not the purpose. Jesus came to renovate, 
every inch of creation. It's like one of those HGTV shows where they go into a busted down old house and on some kind of crazy budget that none of us could work under, they fix it into something miraculous. That's what Jesus came to do. Only it's not a house, it's every square inch of creation, including our relationships with each other, our, communica- our, our relationships with the earth, everything that happens around us, Jesus came to renovate that. And I would argue, and I think the gospel writers would say the same, is that the only way that we can find our identity and our purpose is when we align ourselves with that work. Because if you're a believer in Christ, you are here to reflect the glory of God back to Him. That is why we are here. And so if the work is to give glory to God, and the the work is to renovate creation, then we must align ourselves with that work that Jesus is doing. I want to look at four things today that sort of practically flesh out what it looks like to walk with Jesus. As he's renovating and as we align ourselves and grow in that relationship, what does it look like? So for the, for the help to, to everybody taking notes, if you, I, I often like people to give the points ahead of time because I'm a good Presbyterian. I have points. So four of them this morning. So if you'd like to, um, if you'd like to jot these down in advance. Following Jesus can be overwhelming. Second, following Jesus is often humbling. Third, following Jesus is ultimately encouraging. And fourth, following Jesus is essentially liberating. Overwhelming, humbling, encouraging, liberating. Let's unpack these. The first point that I want to go to is that following Jesus can be overwhelming. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is very relatable because what we see from the very beginning is the disciples returning from work where they saw God practically at work. Jesus sent them out to teach, to heal, to perform miracles. And they come back fired up about the results because they saw God at work. It's much like when our youth return from a big retreat like we did from RYM a couple weeks ago. It's, it's like any of you that have gone on mission trips, whether foreign and domestic, you come back and you're fired up because you've seen God at work. Tangibly. You can point out ways that you saw God at work. God's always working, but something about going out and seeing it is amazing. And the disciples come back, much like we would, looking for Jesus to put things with a magnet up onto their spiritual refrigerator. Like us with a spelling test in third grade. Like they want Jesus to be like, guys, great job. Right? And they come back with that. And, and actually, Jesus does reward them with rest. That's what Jesus' first response is, in rest. But in God's providence, in Christ's knowledge of the situation, in what they need, not what they want, thousands of people descend upon them. Imagine if you had come back from a mission trip, and you were driving home, and everybody had seen the work you were doing, and decided to run from their houses on foot to follow you to get to your house before you, and you had thousands of people just waiting for you to touch them the way that you touched those people. It would be awful. I'm an introvert. I can't imagine anything more painful than spending a week with people and then coming back to more people. But anyway, that's another story. But, so Jesus gives them rest, but, but then in His providence, thousands of people descend upon them. And it illustrates a great point about what the Christian life looks like. The more you work with Jesus, the more you walk with Jesus, the more you grow with Jesus the more your eyes become His eyes, and the more your actions become His actions. And all of you know this, whether you're a Christian or not, that when you love people, it gets messy. 
because people are messy. Any of you who have done work in professional ministry, but even if you haven't, the more you love people, the more you realize how much they're messed up, how much they're selfish, and how much they'll let you down. And I hope I'm not shocking anybody with that revelation. Any of you who have had kids understand this. I've not had kids, but I get the impression in being around kids that it's a handful and it gets messy very quick. I work with teenagers. They frustrate me more than any people I've ever met in my life. I love them to death. They're frustrating. It's messy. It's overwhelming. It's hard. And the disciples are faced with a situation where thousands of people are there looking for help in their struggle, looking for healing, looking for all of these things. And the disciples sit there and say, how can I help these people? The answer is they can't. They're overwhelmed. Oftentimes you get to the point where people are so frustrating and the situation is so messy that you wonder, why do I even try? If you've been there, then you just kind of give up. You throw your hands up. It's overwhelming. I think of it like a college football quarterback when you throw in like a freshman and he looks up at the stands and they don't usually show shock, but you can just tell in their eyes there's this look of, what am I doing here? I don't belong. It's overwhelmed. It's too big a task to take on. But that is the reality of walking with Christ. That this is, the, this is what the walk with Christ looks like, is it's dealing with people's brokenness and messed up-ness, for lack of a better way of saying that, and, and, and being in relationship. It's so easy to ignore people. Loving people is hard. That's the challenge. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's difficult if you get into that. The practical question and the challenge that I would issue to you is, is that, what, is that what's happening? Those of you that are walking with Christ, are you experiencing a situation where you are seeing need popping up all around you? You are seeing people that need things. You're seeing people that need help. You're seeing people that need spiritual help, physical help. Are you seeing that and becoming overwhelmed by it? Or are you so focused on your church activity? Are you so focused on your own spirituality, your own pursuit of holiness, or just on yourself in general that you miss it? That people don't matter to you as much as you matter to yourself. I've used the term navel-gazing with our youth. I think they laugh every time because nobody knows what it means. But it's essentially that idea of paying attention only to yourself. You've put up kind of blinders. And we see this in the church all the time. This is unfortunately, at its worst, what the modern church kind of looks like. Everybody comes on Sunday morning dressed up nice with a smile on their face saying, yeah, they had a good week, and the reality is we don't care for anybody. Is that where you are? Or are you walking with Christ and seeing need? Because it is going to be, and it should be, and it can be, overwhelming. But not only is it overwhelming, Jesus doesn't just want, he doesn't just want that to be what the, the life is. It's also often humbling. Any of you who have worked with people and have, have walked with Jesus know this. It's humbling. We follow the narrative of the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus goes to teach people, and eventually the disciples tell him to shut it down for the day because it's getting late and people need to eat. Any of you who have been involved in a church for any amount of time know sometimes you just want to tell the pastor, shut it down, i got to go eat. I'm desperately hoping that that is not the case today, but I can't control that. So um, <laughs> I think that you see a very real thing from the disciples. It's not that they want Jesus to not teach anymore. It's just that 
there's 20,000 people here, and they need to eat. But it's interesting what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't send them out, which he could do, send them to go get something to eat. Jesus doesn't just miraculously feed everybody, which he has proven later in the story he could do. But what does Jesus do? His response is to the disciples, you feed them. Is there a more terrifying verse in the Bible? You feed them. From Jesus. This is Jesus. Come on. You feed them. The disciples go through a couple of ideas, like they go into the town and spend 200 denarii, which is a ton of money. I didn't look up how many. I apologize for that. But anyway, it's a lot of money. Um, and, and that's clearly not the answer. And they have to get to a point where they basically have to get Jesus to do it. They get to a point where they have to admit in public and out loud that what they have to offer is inadequate and insufficient for what's needed. That is the walk with Christ in a nutshell. You have to get to a point where you have to admit that what I have is inadequate and insufficient. Christianity, Jesus is the only deity and the only worldview on the planet that tells you that that's what you need more than anything else. Every other, every other worldview will tell you, do A, B, and C, and it'll get better. Do A, B, and C, and you'll get heaven. Do A, B, and C, and you'll get the blessing. Jesus says, you can't do A, B, and C. Tell me you can't. That's it. You've got to get to the place where you admit that you can't do it. There is nothing that's harder in my life, whether in ministry or elsewhere, than admitting that I need help. I'm terrible at asking for help. It's perhaps my biggest weakness, and it lands me in a lot of situations that I'd rather not be in. And it harms the way that I'm able to care for students or for anybody else. I get into these trains of thoughts where I feel like I can handle it if I just put a couple more hours into working on it. I find myself up at 3 in the morning realizing that I'm going nowhere. And that's finally when I ask for help. I wish that wasn't the case. But it's a reality that we all have in our lives to some degree, especially when we grow up in an American culture that tells us if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then you'll be in good shape. Anybody can make it as long as you work hard enough. Jesus is telling us that in order to follow me, if you want to walk with me, if you want to grow with me, if you want to be involved in my work, then you've got to admit that you need me. You've got to get to a place of desperation. And that's where the disciples have to get in this story. You feed them, and then eventually they just realize they can't do it. I think we find this so difficult, not only because of the way the culture interprets what life is to us, but because of the way in Christianity it's also part of our modern church culture to do. Get involved. Set up a program for it. Let's add small groups. Let's add some sort of committee. Let's add, like, and I'm not criticizing church government or committee. That's not the point. But the point is, is that we are so obsessed with doing that we forget who we have to depend on. We forget that the work is about God and it's not about us. Most of you are able to admit that sin is a thing. And some of you are even able to admit that it affects you to a point. But where most people get disconnected and struggle 
is when it comes down to saying that I am so broken and ruined by sin that I can literally contribute nothing to this effort and this work but my sin. That's what Jesus is calling us to. So not only can it be overwhelming, it can often be humbling. And now for the good part, or at least the happy part. Because what we see in this story, the feeding of the 5,000, is yes, it's overwhelming. Yes, it's incredibly humbling to follow Jesus. But there is nothing more true than the fact that it's ultimately encouraging. Let me read again verses 39 through 44. If, you're, if you still have your Bibles open, if not, then just, just listen. 39 through 44. Then he, Jesus, commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. I don't know, I said earlier that I don't know if there's a more intimidating verse in the Bible than Jesus saying, you feed them. I don't know if there's a more beautiful verse in the entire Bible than they all ate and were satisfied. The word satisfied there, it's important for us not to miss it. This is not as if everybody got a little morsel of food to, to, to help them for the few minutes. As one pastor put it, these people were Thanksgiving stuffed. You know that feeling when you sit back from the Thanksgiving table, you probably got to loosen a couple notches on your belt because you've just eaten a ton. Nothing to do but sit there and watch a football game. That's where these people are, and there's food left over. What Jesus performs is a true miracle. And yes, in case you're wondering, I do believe Jesus could perform miracles. Talk about that later if you want to. But it's amazing what Jesus has done with so little to work with and has done in the, people, in the need of these people. I just want to make a note that the story says 5,000 men. There's a reason why it says men. It's not because the Bible is misogynistic. I'll get into that in a second. But scholars think this could be as many as fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus fed in this time. To give you some perspective, imagine William and Mary's football stadium filled to capacity. That's who ate that day. And there, were, there was an abundance. There was, there was more food available. It's amazing. The obvious question that comes from this passage also has an obvious answer, but it's important for us to ask is who fed these people? Who did this? The answer, of course, is Jesus. I'm not, hopefully I'm not, not shocking anybody with that. Jesus fed these people. But I want to notice, perhaps more importantly and more amazingly and more encouraging for us, is the fact that the disciples were involved the entire way. There's not a moment in this story where Jesus kind of says, okay, guys, stand aside, I got it. He says, feed these people. When they can't, he says, what do you have? Five loaves and two fishes? Okay, I'm going to break it, I'm going to bless it, and then I want you to hand it out. The disciples are involved. They get their hands dirty. That's amazing if you think about it, because Jesus didn't need them. Jesus proved that. He didn't even need the five loaves and two fish. Why? Why did he, why did he use them? One of my favorite memories from when I was a kid, my family is from kind of near Hopewell, Virginia, southern end of Chesterfield County area, about an hour down the road, and uh, my family owns a dry cleaners in Hopewell, which my dad and my uncle used to run. 
And my dad would let me come during the summer when I was out of school, would let me come and help when I was younger. And I remember it being one of my favorite memories because I thought it was so cool just to see it all work and to be around my dad. It was a nice thing. It was fun because I, I still think my dad's cool, but I thought he was cool back then as well. He would let me tag shirts. He would let me use the presser. He would let me use the little spot thing. I don't remember what it's called. I've got to get the official name, but he would let me do it all. And I thought I was awesome at it. I was like 11, and I thought I was like the king of the world because I could press shirts. Yeah, it was not a very exciting... My, my life's not exciting. Anyway, um, but it was great. Now, I'm positive that 11-year-old Taylor Hausman made the job far less efficient than it could have been. I know for sure my dad could have done everything that we did probably two times faster than it took with me there. But why? Why is it significant? Why did he want me to be there? Why did I want to be there, even though now, in retrospect, I know it was inefficient? Any of you who have had kids and have let them fold the laundry with you, or have let them clean the house with you, or have let them mow the lawn, or or whatever, you know what I'm driving at here. It's that when you love somebody, when you have a relationship with somebody beyond just knowing them, when you love somebody, not only do you want them to be a part of what you're doing, but they want to be a part of what you're doing. My dad wanted me to be a part of what he was doing. He was teaching me lessons through that and just hanging out with me. And that's the picture of God that we get from the Bible. If you were to poll people on what they thought of God, people would have this idea that God is this strict judge who sits high above on His throne and stops people from being able to have fun. That's the way we think of God a lot of the time. He's just waiting with His magnifying glass over our anthill to burn us when we screw up. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible wants to be with us. He's pursuing us. What if we thought of God that way? Church, people of God, what if we thought of God that way in our work? That God wanted to be with us. God wanted us to be with Him. He wanted us to be a part of what He is doing. That is so contrary to the way we think about the God that we're serving. And here we see a Jesus that wants the disciples to be intricately involved in this process. That's amazing and encouraging. I just want to point that point, I just want to get that point out. It's incredibly encouraging because even though loving people is hard and it's messy, Jesus takes our feeble, weak, selfish effort and explodes it into something incredibly beautiful. Jesus took the pitiful five loaves and two fish of the disciples, which were insufficient, and blew them up into something that could feed 20,000 people. That's a picture of what we've got. That's a picture of the God we serve. And that's encouraging. We are not great. Jesus invites us to work within His greatness and to share in it. But it's not just encouraging because Jesus takes it a step further. And the fourth point I want to point out is that not only is it overwhelming, not only is it humbling, not only is it encouraging, it's liberating. It's actually liberating. 
Later on in chapter 6, the story that follows the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 is Jesus walking on the water. And I just two verses from that story, verses 51 and 52. This is at the end of that. And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? They didn't understand about the loaves, pointing back to the feeding of the 5,000. What it means is that there was a point Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples. There's something Jesus wanted the disciples to learn from that experience that they missed. They didn't get it. We so often don't get it. Jesus wanted them to learn. So what do they want them to learn? Mark does an amazing thing in his telling of this story. And Jesus, by his actions, does an amazing thing. And that's that he uses three Old Testament flashbacks and one foreshadowing to indicate to us what we need to glean from this story. Very quickly, I want to go through these flashbacks from the Old Testament because Jesus is communicating to us something very, very specific and and incredible about himself. In verse 40 it says, So they all sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. When I first read that, I had that sort of, what? That doesn't make sense. By hundreds and by fifties. Why does it matter how they sat? It matters how they sat because Jesus is doing this to point directly to Exodus chapter 18, where Moses did the same thing with the Israelites. He sat them, specifically worded in Exodus 18, in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Not only does Jesus sit them that way, but then he provides for them, which Moses could not do. What is Jesus communicating? I am the new and greater Moses. The second thing that's said, not really said, it's just kind of the point of the story. Jesus feeds 5,000 men with 20 loaves, or excuse me, five loaves and two fish. Now, I said earlier that it's not because the Bible's misogynistic that it says men. Jesus does this because it directly points us to 2 Kings, where Elijah miraculously feeds 100 men with five loaves, or with 20 loaves, excuse me, I got my numbers screwed up. 100 men with 20 loaves. Still a miraculous feeding, miraculous thing done by God through Elijah. But I think Jesus, in feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, is communicating to us that not only am I the new and greater Moses, I am the new and greater and true prophet. Here to testify to what God has done. I am the prophet. The third thing is that, two two different points. He says we're going to all sit down in groups on green grass. And then he refers to the people like sheep without a shepherd. Any of you can know that like sheep sheep without a shepherd is pretty much sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure it says, refers to people that way in just about every book of the Old Testament. But I want to go specifically to what this made me immediately think of, which is Psalm 23. Perhaps the most famous psalm that we have, the most well-known. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd. That psalm is about me. And I'm here. What is Jesus getting at with those three foreshadowings? He says, you keep coming to me for miracles. You keep coming to me for bread. You keep coming to me for material things. The thing you need more than anything else is me. You need me. 
Bread will satisfy you for an hour. I'll satisfy you for eternity. And taking that to our lives practically, once you have Jesus, once you are in a relationship with Jesus that is growing and you are walking together, you are working and doing a work that you were designed to do. When God created us in Genesis, we were created to be a reflection of God's glory. As one pastor put it, we were created to be 45-degree mirrors pointing back at the sky. God's glory rains down on us, we reflect it right back. In our sin, we so often fail to do that. But as we're working in Jesus' mission to renovate all of creation, we are working a work which we were designed to be working. There is nothing more liberating in the world than when you are working on something that you were designed to be working on. When you don't have to figure it out, you just know it. We've talked a lot about the Olympics in this worship service. I didn't think it would make it in as much as it did, but I love the fact that it does because it's amazing to watch people. Yes, they've trained for hours, but it's amazing to watch people who you can tell are naturally gifted at something. Sometimes it's something so particular like walking really fast or jumping on a trampoline or something ridiculous. Handball. Hilarious if you watch it. But the point is, is that these people are naturally talented and gifted for these things. They feel comfortable. Nothing is more liberating or comfortable than when you are in a situation that you know you're supposed to be in. Going back to Inigo and, and Fezzik, that's where they found themselves. They're not supposed to be bad guys. They're supposed to be people working for a noble cause. They're supposed to be people in a community that loves them and cares for them. That's what we all need. But Jesus even takes it a step further, and I'll close with this as we wrap it up. Verse 41 says that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. This is an obvious foreshadowing. In a couple chapters, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to do the same thing. He's going to take bread. He's going to look to heaven. He's going to bless it. He's going to break it. And he's going to give it to the disciples. But instead of getting them to pass it out to other people, Jesus is actually going to say, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat it. What is Jesus driving at? Brothers and sisters, the reality of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that in order for us to achieve the blessing of God, Jesus had to be broken. And in His brokenness, we receive the blessing. It's amazingly liberating because most of us live a Christian life that involves a baseline anxiety that we have not done enough to achieve God's blessing. We are so obsessed with doing things the right way. We are so obsessed with doing things the proper way to achieve the blessing. The gospel comes along to bang us over the head and say, stop worrying and working so much because you already have the blessing. Jesus died on the cross for you. Church, Jesus died on the cross for you, Christian. And when He went up on that cross, He took all of your sin and messiness and brokenness with Him. The victory has been won. You can be free to work because it's no longer about you. It's about Jesus. It's about committing to that work of renovating creation for God's glory. I'll close with this illustration which a pastor friend named Andy Wood gave and I loved, and so I'm going to 
take it. Um, with his permission, I ask him. Um, the difference between working from acceptance versus working for acceptance. A couple letters make that a profoundly different statement. The picture I have of this comes from the show American Idol. One of the most popular television shows in the history of our country, which probably says more about our country than it does anything else. But anyway, side note. But American Idol, the point of American Idol is to sing as well as you can to get the approval of judges so that eventually you can win. So they have all these various rounds and auditions and all this stuff. You get to the final show between two people and somebody wins. They're announced as the winner. And in their celebration with mascara usually running down their face, all choked up from just celebration, they do the one thing that wouldn't make sense to anyone. They ask them to sing a song in celebration. It makes no sense. And they go up there, and it's, they sing the worst song they've sung in the entire competition. And it's terrible. But at the same time, even though it's not good, you have people just celebrating and smiling and happy, and nobody's criticizing how bad their singing is. Why? Because they are working from acceptance. They're no longer working for acceptance. What if our work in the kingdom looked like that? What if we approached loving people and serving people and even evangelism or anything else working from acceptance versus working for acceptance? Because we believe in a God and we serve a God who understood that the only way that we could work with freedom was to die for us. That's amazing. Not only is it encouraging, it's incredibly liberating. So be free to work in the kingdom because He's gone before you. He set you up. And it's not about your success, it's about His. It's about the glory that God has, has, has given to earth. We can be free in that. And we should worship and work that way. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you saw value in us enough to die for us. You understood that in order for us to be free and in order for us to receive blessing, that you had to be broken. Father, help us to live in that liberation. Help us to be transformed by that gospel so that we can go serve one another and the people around us in freedom, in joy, in liberation. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.